come on in. This is the best weather for going to church, I think. The two Sundays a year where it's perfect outside. We will get going here on um, the, the second part of applied theology of evangelism. And I told you last time, because we sort of ran out of time, um, that if you want to, we can... Last time what we did was we just kind of talked about getting the gospel right and um, talked about kind of some key concepts. So I wanted to find out if anybody had any follow-up questions or discussions uh, from, from that before I jump into our next part. And this, I don't have just a ton of material today, so this might be a good day where we'll have some time at the end as well. So, any, three, two, one, any last questions? All right. So, what we're going to look at today, last week we talked about getting the gospel right. Today I want to talk about pros and cons of evangelism methods, and, and you'll probably, uh, probably kind of figure out where I land on this because we don't spend a lot of time at Grace Bible Church teaching evangelism methods. Um, in fact, we spend zero time t- teaching that. Every once in a while, we'll do an evangelism class. Sometimes Bart will do that. Um, but as we uh, get through today, I think you'll kind of see where, where our church leadership lands on this um, and how we, as a church, really work together. So, but they're not bad. Evangelism methods are not bad. It's just, uh, it's a... It's kind of a coin toss. Do you spend your resources on this or not? Um, Because that's not primarily how the church has grown over the past 2,000 years uh, through programs and that sort of thing. So last week we talked about getting the gospel right. Today we're going to do pros and cons of evangelism methods. Next week we'll talk about starting the conversation. I'd like to give you some ideas for proclaiming the gospel. Let me just read a couple of quotes to you. The chief agents in the expansion of Christianity appear not to have been those who made it a profession or made it a major part of their occupation, but men and women who carried on their livelihood in some purely secular manner and spoke of their faith to those they met in this natural fashion. Now, that's the beginning. What what, uh, this historian is saying in this book called The History of the Expansion of Christianity, he's saying that the pastors didn't make the expansion of the gospel happen. It's the people of the church that did, which totally makes sense, doesn't it? Because Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11, says that he gave the gifts of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for what? For the equipping of the saints. And so that has been historically the method. Now, the part he leaves out is what did what have Christians done historically going all the way back to the church in Jerusalem as step two of proclaiming the gospel to their neighbors and their co-workers, what they have historically done is brought them to church. And so in other words, it's a team effort that I'm proclaiming the gospel to you in my workplace. And by the way, I'd like for you to come with me to church and I want you to hear the gospel proclaimed. And so he kind of leaves that part out. But this is very true. This is why um, uh, historically, yes, there are churches that have Uh, pastors over outreach. I would rather call them pastors over training others to outreach, to reach out. Uh, What you end up up doing is, and I talked to a guy about this just a couple of weeks ago uh, in a large church, and they pay 
a full-time salary to a guy to go door to door and to hand out tracts. And they pay him like six figures to do this. And, you know, they have plenty of money. It's not an issue, I guess. But my thinking is all of us can do that and it costs nothing, right? You can do that. In fact, today, I told you this last week, it used to be you had to have gospel tracts printed really nicely. All you have to do is Google gospel tract or go to, uh, go to waythemaster.com and print some off on PDFs. And so it's so easy. That historically has been how the church grows. Let me read you another quote from uh, Jesse Johnson. He's a pastor now in, uh, in the Washington, D.C. area, if I can get my slide to go. There we go. He says, Christian obedience is not motivated by guilt, but by glory. Teach the people that evangelism is done as an act of obedient worship. The Christian evangelizes because his heart has been made glad by the glorious grace of God and so satisfied by the joy of the Lord that comes in Christ, he becomes free to lay down his life in faithful service to others, longing for them to know the joy of worshiping the God they love. That is so organic. That is so natural. That is how the church has grown. That it's, it's not because you took a class. It's not because you even heard a lecture like this. But it's because your heart is overflowing with thankfulness for your own salvation. And you see the lost around you. And you want to give that to them. And I put it this way. Um, even in secular terms. Even in worldly uh, materialistic terms. When somebody figures out how to make millions of dollars. What do they very often do? They begin telling other people how to do it. Now, of course, they charge to do that, and that becomes their new business. But even in secular terms, you learn how to get something spectacular you deeply desire to tell others. And that's been how the church has grown. So what I want to do today is just kind of some of the pros and cons of evangelism methods. And then we're going to evaluate um, probably one of the most popular ones today called the way of the master. It's been going for a couple of decades now and it um, has been spectacular. There are others, evangelism explosion, a little bit older. Maybe some of you have even been through that. Um, but we'll, I, I, think, I think just the pros and cons of using evangelism methods will help you evaluate, uh, which is kind of what I want to do. And then, and then we'll do one that we'll facetiously call his intended way which is really kind of what the Bible says. Um, I don't know if you want to call it a method, but it's just kind of what the Bible says about evangelism. So let's start with uh, the pros and cons of evangelism methods. There are some, some advantages. An evangelism method can give you a template to follow and help you formulate a plan. Um, in other words, you have a preset uh, direction that you're going to go and that that is useful and that what that can do is actually increase your confidence um, to share your faith with others uh, i would tend to say that sometimes it could be a substitute for just practice it could be a substitute for what i mean by practice by the uh, habit of sharing the gospel with all those around you uh, but it's a good place to start uh, particularly for a new believer Another pro is that it can help you stay focused on the gospel presentation and not get uh, sidetracked with non-essential questions. Well, can God make a rock too big for himself to lift? A method helps you stay off of that. Uh, it can, you know, how many angels can fit on the head of a pen and all those silly questions. Um, can God create something that he can't do? Those questions are not given by uh, sincere seekers of the Lord. They're given by people who are trying to challenge you. And so you have to walk around that. 
because the Bible deals with those questions by dealing with the issue of sovereignty, the issue of holiness, and so you go to the issue of God himself. It can also help motivate a church group to evangelize the lost. I've looked into a lot of evangelism methods, and I've read about them, and I've called pastors who use them. This is, just, this is just my experience. This is anecdotal only. This is not scriptural. So you can take this with a giant asterisk and a grain of salt. My experience has been that churches that push evangelism methods really hard don't preach the gospel very, with much depth from the pulpit. That, and I don't understand that exactly, but we've got to do evangelism explosion um, so that you can know the gospel. What I have, my experience has been is that then in that same church, the, the, the preaching is not deep. There's not a sense of uh, trying to really inculcate and infiltrate hearts, inculcate the gospel into every message and make the gospel just permeate what we do as an act of worship. Uh, that you have to search for the gospel in a worship service. That the songs even that we sing are, are primarily about how Jesus makes me feel as opposed to what the truths of the gospel are. And so I don't know why that is exactly, but I've also noticed on the flip side that churches that, that hammer the gospel into our hearts week after week after week do not tend to rely on evangelism programs as much. Now, probably the best one-two punch is to have both, but what I've found is that a lot of evangelism programs have to spend a lot of time teaching you the gospel because you don't know it. Now, can you be saved without really being able to articulate the gospel? To a certain degree, yes, because four-year-olds get saved, right? And if you ask a four-year-old, how did you get saved? He's probably not going to say, well, let me tell, talk to you about total depravity and, and unlimited, un- unconditional election and limited atonement and irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. A four-year-old's going to say, I've been bad and God forgave me. So to a certain degree, I understand that. But when half of an evangelism method is teaching you what the gospel is in the first place, then there's homework that should have already been done. It should have been plowing into your heart. So that's just my, my observation. Yes, it can help motivate the church group to evangelize the lost. But as the quote I read from Jesse Johnson said, teach the people that evangelism is done as an act of obedient worship. Evangelism programs can create an emotional Uh, motivation. I really need to do this. But what happens with emotional motivation in any area? It goes up and then it goes back down, right? Well, I, you know, this past week I shared the gospel with eight people because of this program. That's great. Fast forward six months. Did you share the gospel with eight people that week? Probably not. So I, I tend to be a little bit suspicious. I know we're still into the pros and I went over to con, but, uh, that is my prerogative. So the third pro and again, by the way, uh, this is a personnel issue. If one, two, three, or five of you come to the elders and say, we want to provide an evangelism program, absolutely. We've done that in the past. What we have found is that the excitement starts big and drops off quickly. And, and that's not for a bad reason. I've talked to multiple people in our church as to why that is. And the reason is, is people tell me, I'm kind of already sharing the gospel with my coworkers, with my family. I mean, I'm already doing this. And so that's a good reason. Here's a pro. It can emphasize the importance of, of evangelizing through the example of others. Have you ever been in a situation with one other believer 
where sort of somewhere in the back of your heart, you knew that you're dealing with a lost person, let's say a wait staff at the restaurant, and the other believer there takes the time to share the gospel, and you go, oh, I should have done that. So that's good. A little bit of peer pressure on the positive side is wonderful. Um, I, I think that that is good for us, and we need to see that. And then one more pro. It reminds us that evangelism is verbal. Living a godly life in front of others is not evangelism. Um, there's, a, there's a famous saying quoted by probably every preacher on planet Earth at one time by Francis of Assisi. I won't call him a saint, but Francis of Assisi that says that uh, you should, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, you should preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. That is a horrible quote. That is a horrible thing. The gospel is words. The gospel is truth. We didn't, you didn't get a little tract that says, look at the life of Jesus, period. Jesus lived a holy life, but he also proclaimed the gospel. He, his first sermon from Mark chapter one, his first, uh, his first message was repent and believe the gospel. It's verbal. So I think the good thing about uh, evangelism methods reminds us that it, it takes words. Lifestyle evangelism uh, includes words. It includes, yes, living a godly life, which we'll talk about, but that's not evangelism. Uh, people will not figure it out. There is no possible way that somebody will come to you and say, you know, I've noticed that you, you, know, you keep your lawn mown and, and you're, you don't kick your dog and, and you seem to be really nice to your, your wife when I see you guys out in the driveway and, and your kids are well behaved. You know what I just figured out? You worship Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he died on the cross to save me from my sins and he was raised from the dead for my justification. And he's in heaven right now advocating before the Father for, for sinners like me. Could I come to faith in Christ? You know how many people have ever done that? Zero. That never happens. Now, your lifestyle may be an introduction to that conversation, which we'll talk about in a minute. So let's do some cons, as if I haven't hit that already, of evangelism methods. I'm concerned that it can lead to the notion of the way to evangelize. And I, I've seen this be a real issue. It can pigeonhole someone into believing that they must use a certain method or that, that be, if they don't use that method, they're being less than obedient to the Great Commission. And it can lead to the idolization of certain methods. And so we, we want to be careful of that. There is not the way to evangelize. There is the gospel, which must be part of your evangelism, but there is not the way. It can also lead to division in the church. What, is, what do I mean by this? The more outgoing people are looking down on the less outgoing people. Some of you, not all of you, in fact, not many of you, but some of you are just social machines. You just make friends with anything that will stand still for 20 seconds. And that's the way you're built. Some of you are able to get into a gospel conversation within 30 seconds after that. Hi, my name is so-and-so. How are you doing? It's good to see you here today. I'm wondering what you're doing here. Hey, would you like to have a conversation about God? I'd love to have a conversation about God. And by your, the very weight of your personality, that person's like, I've known you for 45 seconds. And yes, I would like to have a conversation about God. That's fabulous, but not everybody's made that way and people who are made that way can be tempted to look down on those who are not. And at the same time, you causes division the other way. It can cause resentment by the quieter among us. 
that, well, that guy thinks he's all that because he just goes out talking to everybody. And so that's not helpful. It can also lead to what one pastor called varsity versus junior varsity methods. And I'm, I'm calling upon uh, the old sports metaphor. The varsity methods. Well, I go cold calling. I do street preaching. I go down to the bus stop and I preach to the strangers. Well, I, I guess I'm just junior varsity because all I did last week was I left a tract on the table. I, I did... I am praying for a neighbor that I talk to on occasion. I'm really hoping to find a way to to share the gospel with him. I I guess I'm less than you. I am concerned about that because the gospel is not um, reduced to this method that is better than another. Some people will get to heaven having proclaimed the gospel to thousands and thousands of people. Some of you will get to heaven having proclaimed the gospel to two, three, or four. Some of you moms might just be thankful that you've proclaimed the gospel to your kids and they got saved. Praise the Lord for that. God calls different people to different levels of service and different, uh, different results. I read recently of one missionary that was proclaiming the gospel. This is a trained professional gospel proclaimer. But the missionary who was in, in an area proclaiming the gospel for 17 years, no converts whatsoever. What would we say of him? We would say he was successful. Why? Because he's faithful. He's faithful. And then others like Jonah, who has a lousy attitude and goes and gives a really short sermon, repent or you're dead, to Nineveh, and the whole city repents. And Jonah gets mad about it. So, I'm, I'm uneasy with saying that there are better methods than others. That the person who goes out on the street corner and shouts the gospel to people is somehow a higher level Christian than the one who's just quietly praying for the coworker in the cubicle next to him. So we want to be careful about that. It can also lead to the belief that the Christian can't evangelize the quote-unquote right way until he's gone through the training that's, that's concerning to me. That, well, you don't know the right way. There isn't a the right way. That is a, that is a great concern. It can lead to a trust in the method. We don't trust a method. Who transforms people? It is the Holy Spirit. I have personally, and I'll throw myself under the bus here, I have personally given to an individual what I considered a stellar gospel presentation i remembered my verses i could point to the scriptures i could go through the romans road from memory i explained that all of sin and fall short of the glory of god and that the wages of sin is death but the free gift of god is is salvation in christ i explained that if you'll come to christ that there is therefore now no condemnation who are in christ jesus i talked about the holiness of god and the the greatness of christ and the sinfulness of man and the, and the whole spiel and had a person just say, eh, not interested. On the flip side, I also personally have fumbled my way through a presentation so bad I wondered if I was a Christian when I was done. How can I be a two-time graduate of the Master's Seminary, get in the pulpit, and be here in Starbucks, and can't even remember what, you know, I think that's in the book of hesitations or something, and had somebody say, I am a sinner. I need, to, I need to seek after God. What book of the Bible should I start reading? So there's not a correlation 
between the glitziness of the method and the results that you get, which is what gives me such confidence in the pulpit every Sunday. All I have to do is make sure I open the Bible and read some verses and I've done my job. The Holy Spirit is the one who saves. And so we don't want to have trust in a method. We trust in the Holy Spirit. And that's very exciting. I'm going to talk about this later this morning, but I think Calvinists are the best evangelists because we know people are going to get saved. We know it. We just don't have the inside information on who the elect are, right? And that makes us proclaim the gospel to everyone. It can also, and this is probably my, my biggest concern, it leads to an abridged gospel. It leads to a, a shortened gospel. You want to beware of the danger of foisting the kind of a canned approach to evangelism into every interaction. Every interaction is different. And if you, if you don't hear the whole context of what I'm about to say, you'll think I'm a heretic. But the gospel is different depending on who you talk to. Now, what do I mean by that? If you're talking to a five-year-old, the gospel does not include you need to repent from your heinous lifestyle of drugs and sexual immorality. That doesn't include that. On the other side, when you're talking to a 50-year-old who's been in drugs and sexual immorality, the gospel presentation probably doesn't include, do you remember when you were three and you said no to your mom? So your gospel presentation, you you are tailoring it to the person. You're not tailoring the truth. You're tailoring your presentation and you're intersecting with that person's life in a way that's meaningful to them. And so... You can't always foist a canned approach on, on somebody. Um, there is a, a common approach used in the so-called prosperity gospel tr- uh, church, and that's, it's, both of those are oxymorons. But that approach is, you're not happy, Jesus wants to make you happy. Why can't you insert that into somebody's life? Because from a worldly standpoint, somebody might actually be pretty happy. Because happiness has to do with your circumstances. That person might say, look, I have way more money than you. Why, why would you say I'm not happy? I have, a, I have a bigger house than you. Why would you say I'm not happy from a worldly standpoint? So the abridged gospel is, is dangerous. I want to read a long quote from uh, John MacArthur. He talked about this. He said, the gospel is not a message that can be capsulized, abridged, and shrink-wrapped, then offered as a generic remedy for every kind of sinner. Listen carefully. Ignorant sinners need to be instructed about who God is and why he has the right to demand their obedience. Self-righteous sinners need to have their sin exposed by the demands of God's law. Careless sinners need to be confronted with the reality of God's impending judgment. And fearful sinners need to hear that God in his mercy has provided a way of deliverance. The form of the message will vary in each case. Does that make sense? He goes on to say, but the content must always drive home the reality of God's holiness and the sinner's helpless condition. Then it points sinners to Christ as a sovereign but merciful Lord who has purchased full atonement for all who will turn to him in faith. Let me put it to you this way. Two extremes. You're speaking to somebody and person A says, I'm scared I'm going to go to hell and I don't know the answer. Person B says, couldn't care less if there was a hell, probably don't believe it anyway, I'm going to do what I want. Are you, are you truly going to proclaim the gospel the same way to person A and B? Not at all. It's going to be completely different, yet it's grounded in the cross, grounded in, in the atonement and so forth. 
So those are some pros and cons of evangelism method, methods. I want to talk about one of the more popular ones called uh, the way of the master. This is a cold evangelism method, meaning this is a method for speaking to someone that you just met, someone on the street or at a, at a door. And today, by the way, door-to-door evangelism is pretty unpopular today because people are so suspicious and they have the little cameras and they just don't come to the door, right? And they see you're carrying the Bible, they just yell, I'm not home, or, or whatever they do. Now, just to be clear, I have taken people through the way of the master training. There's a whole video series that I think is actually very helpful. When I did this, it definitely, in our little church in Texas, it raised awareness, it raised ability in evangelism. But I want to be very clear, it is not the way of the master. The way of the master is a method of cold evangelism. It was popularized by uh, Ray Comfort and uh, Kirk Cameron. And it teaches Christians to use the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments then are used to confront non-believers with the reality of their own sinfulness. So where do they get the way of the master? Well, it's called the way of the master based on Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. This is a young man who thought he could earn eternal life. And so Jesus directed him to the impossible standard of the law. He summarized five of the Ten Commandments in order to make the rich young ruler aware of his own sinfulness. And so based on this, The teachers of the way of the master insist that Christians should show unbelievers that they're not good persons by holding them to the standard of the of the Ten Commandments. They're not good people. So here's how the interaction usually goes. And probably most of you have heard this. The evangelist says, do you think you're a good person? And somebody says, yeah, I think I'm a pretty good person. And so the evangelist says, well, have you ever told a lie? And the sinner says, yeah, I've told a lie. Well, what do you call someone who lies? I guess a liar. The evangelist says, that's right. Have you ever stolen something, regardless of how valuable it is? Maybe one paperclip at your work. Well, yeah, I suppose I have. What do you call somebody who steals? A thief. And the interaction goes on through a few more iterations with others of the commandments, and it usually ends up with something like this. So by your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, blaspheming adulterer at heart. And the question then is, if God judges you by the standard of the Ten Commandments on Judgment Day, will you be innocent or guilty? And the sinner is forced to say, I guess I would be guilty. And the evangelist says, and if God as a righteous judge gives you justice, will he send you to heaven or hell? And somebody might say, well, I still think he should send me to heaven. And then the, the, the side question is, well, if a judge on this earth were to take somebody who is a lying, thieving, blaspheming, adulterer, or murderer, uh, would, and, and let them off, would you call him a righteous judge or an unrighteous? And they'll say, well, an unright, unrighteous judge, a, a bad judge. So if God is a good judge, what should he do with you? And so theoretically, the person says, well, he would send me to hell. And then you work your way into asking, does that concern you? Is that, is that a worry for you? And the sinner should say, yes, actually that does concern me now that you put it that way. And then you work into the gospel. Do you know that God made a way that you wouldn't have to suffer the penalty of hell for breaking his law? And from there, the evangelist shares the gospel. And so that's, that's basically how the interaction goes. Now, I will tell you this. Um, a group that I took, took this through, uh, took, took through this rather, um, I'm going to say it's 15, 17 years ago. Um, 
we got to a video when they, they, it was a video training. We got to a video where there was one of their, one of the way of master, way of the master's folks were out on the street, um, doing this method. And every video had that. They had examples of this conversation. One time when a person said, yes, I, I am a sinner. I need to come to faith in Christ. How do I do that? Right at that moment, which we, which we celebrate and that's glorious. But what we all noticed, and we had a big discussion about this, is that the person doing the interview didn't know what to do at that moment and looked shocked and surprised. And the general discussion was that, generally speaking, you don't get to that point that often. And so that, that was kind of a surprise. But there are some strengths. I think that it is a super way to, to start a conversation. You think you're a good person. That... that no matter what they say, if they say no, then you go to a, a theological conversation. If they say yes, you go to a theological conversation. It helps people realize that they're not good in God's eyes and God takes sin seriously. It also takes God's holiness and man's sin very seriously um, versus all the methods which downplay the reality of sin. I think other methods sometimes downplay sin. And the, the flip side to talking about sin is that you're also talking about the holiness of God. Because someone might ask the question, well, why is sin such a big deal? And your answer is because God is holy. And he can be with nothing that is unholy. And right now, by your own admission, you are unholy. So how can you be with God? It also quickly puts people into a logical paradox. They believe that they're inherently good, but they're admitting to doing bad things. And so that does provoke some thought and some honesty on their part. It also gives the bad news before the good news so that people know what they need to be saved from. I, I think that is probably one of the key, really good features of the way of the master is that it doesn't start with, did you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? I hate that method. The, the four spiritual laws method. Yes, people come to faith in that, but can I say this from that? I, I think they come to faith despite the method, not because of it. But the way the master starts with the bad news, you're a sinner, you're in trouble, you're dangling over hell. What are you going to do about that? That is terrific. And I think that should be a part of all of our gospel presentation, um, not presenting Jesus as somebody who wants to give you a good life, but Jesus as somebody who must give you eternal life because you're headed toward an eternal destruction. So I want to talk about some of the weaknesses then of the way of the master and, oh, there's the strengths. Did I have that twice? I did. Okay, I feel a little bit better. The weaknesses. Now, I, I want to I put a huge asterisk before we start weaknesses. I have a very dear friend who is um, currently between churches. He's been a pastor. I was in seminary with him. A very dear friend. And he and his wife um, were in a completely different field altogether. And they were having a horrible life and just everything going wrong, and they were at each other's throats, and, and just living a, a godless, horrible existence. And they were late at night flipping through channels on TV back in the day when we watched actual TV and didn't do Netflix and all of that. And a one-minute Way of the Master advertisement came on, 60 seconds with somebody doing this presentation, and they both got on their knees and came to faith in Christ. His wife has since gone on to be home with the Lord due to cancer, and he has served the Lord faithfully in, in the church and will continue to do so. And so 
the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That was, that was God sovereignly saving them. And so praise the Lord for that. If, if we could have a one-minute presentation on our website, I'd love to do that. If we could do something like that. Um, you may as well throw as many hooks into the sea as you can, right? So before I talk about weaknesses, um, yes, through God's sovereignty, people come to faith through this. I'm just talking about is it something that you want to emphasize in your own life? Some of the weaknesses, certain aspects of the gospel message are downplayed in favor of the Ten Commandments. There, there's very little mention of the resurrection of Christ. There's almost no mention of the, the work of Christ's uh, intercession right now. Those are key elements to the gospel. The death of Christ, actually back up, the life of Christ, then the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the current intercession of Christ. Those are all parts of the gospel. And there's a, a definite lack of focus on the implications of following Christ and discipleship. In other words, it's all about conversion. But conversion Im- implies what? Discipleship. And so uh, we want to uh, go beyond that. We've also noticed that the presentation is often disconnected with the local church. That's common to all cold evangelism. And the fact that the people I've known that are the, the types that I've talked to you about that have sort of the I'm the varsity evangelist because I go out and do, uh, do cold calling and this and that and this and that, they often have an attitude of looking down on the churches. Well, those are just the regular people. I'm out doing the real work. Church history says otherwise. Church history says that the church has done the work of evangelism by bringing people to the church and hearing the gospel. So it's disconnected from the local church. Say what you like about uh, the Billy Graham crusades of of decades and decades, and there are some problems with that. But one of the things the Billy Graham Association did well was to plow the ground by having local churches ready to be involved with people who who proclaimed uh, to have come to faith in Christ. Um, Not big on altar calls, but people who did genuinely come to faith were immediately uh, connected with local churches that would disciple them. So they did that very well. That's why Dr. Steve Lawson for years was part of the Billy Graham Association being part of that because he believed in in that method, uh, if I could use that word. It's often also when it's disconnected with the local church, the the danger is, what do you do with somebody who says, yeah, I'd like to come to faith in Christ. Uh, Great, here's a Bible, hope to see you someday. No, there has to be a connection to the local church, so there should be a way to follow up. Another weakness, it rightly stresses the judicial nature of salvation, but it neglects the aspect of explaining the restoration of our relationship with God through Christ. It's not just that you're judicially made right before God and righteous. There's, There's the imputed righteousness, but now there's the reconciliation now, the, the other side is American evangelicalism only goes to reconciliation. Do you want God to be your friend? And that sort of thing. So you have to have both. You have to have the, you have to have the, uh, the idea of restoration of relationship and the judicial side. Both have to be there. I think the way the master is weak on explaining the purposes of propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath, of atonement, and forgiveness um, to get our sin out of the way so that we can have fellowship with God. I, I think it's so important to include the fact that God desires fellowship with you. God desires that. But his fellowship with you is broken by your sin. And the gospel restores that fellowship to what it once was in the, in the Garden of Eden with, with Adam and Eve. 
Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who is called by my name, who I, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. How is God glorified? He's glorified when we repent and we are restored in our relationship with him. This is one of the bigger weaknesses. It leads to confusion about the new covenant. I, I have spent my ministry life trying to undo confusion about the old covenant versus the new covenant. That's kind of my, one of my callings, I guess. What you have in the way of the master is an emphasis on the law as identical to the Ten Commandments, and that leads to some faulty conclusions. Because what you're actually doing is, is putting people under a law as Gentiles that they were never under to begin with. Does that make sense? The fourth commandment concerning the Sabbath uh, is sometimes presented in way of the master tracks as if it's still binding. Well, have you ever, uh, the way I've heard it presented verbally is, well, have you ever, you know, uh, mowed your lawn on a Sunday? Now you're going into legalism. Have you ever ignored God and not gone to church on a Sunday? Uh, I'm an atheist. I've never gone to church on a Sunday. That, that's meaningless. The Sabbath is a sign to Israel of the old covenant, of the Mosaic covenant. It was a glorious sign. And it's one, by the way, we could argue will be reinstated in the millennial kingdom. So it causes confusion. Uh, <clears throat> I've seen this. I've personally witnessed this. When somebody says, well, are, are you, uh, you know, are going through the commandments? You know, have you ever committed this, committed that? You're quoting the Ten Commandments at me, right? Well, yeah. Look, I haven't been in church a lot, but one thing I do know is that there's an Old Testament and a New Testament, right? Isn't the Old Testament all about Israel? And the person didn't have an answer. Well, well yeah, but I'm still, let's go back to, let me, let me get my sheet out here because I lost my place. So you need to have answers to that. So it can create some confusion. You have some texts uh, such as Psalm 19.7, 1 John 3.4 that are misinterpreted to emphasize the importance of the law. And what can happen then is it causes later confusion about Old Covenant versus New Covenant. That the, We have to be very, very clear that the only way that you may relate to God is through the New Covenant. You have to be very clear about that. And I'll, I'll give you an idea about this in just a moment. Uh, one more con. It's sometimes presented as the only valid approach to evangelism. We've talked about this. Uh, I do want to say this. Using the, the rich young ruler, it actually demonstrates kind of some pretty bad hermeneutics. It's a, it's a poor interpretive practice to develop a hard and fast rule from a narrative text. That because of this one interaction with the rich young ruler, this is how you must do evangelism from now on. That's just bad hermeneutics. Maybe better hermeneutics would be that a way to share the gospel is to ask somebody if they have kept the law of God and to challenge them. That's a little bit better way to put it. You can bring the knowledge of sin without using the Ten Commandments. Did you know that? It's more theologically accurate to use the New Covenant Scriptures, the New Testament, in manifesting God's standard of righteousness. And which commandments can you talk about? You can talk about idolatry. From Matthew 23, 27, you can talk about blasphemy from Ephesians 4, 29. You can talk about obeying your parents from Ephesians 6, adultery from Matthew 5, stealing from Ephesians 4, murder from Matthew 5, lying from Revelation 21, coveting from Ephesians 5. And so it's more useful to be able to have some verses to turn to in your Bible to ask somebody if they have committed these sins. 
So just kind of a, a summary here. It's helpful in beginning a genuine gospel conversation. It is effective at helping unbelievers come to the knowledge of their sin and their guilt. It's not the only way to evangelize biblically, and we can use the New Testament to bring the knowledge of sin to somebody. So that's kind of my evaluation. Uh, Let's talk about something we might call His intended way, which is a little more general, and I think this is an improvement. First of all, live a transformed life. Notice that there are four other points after that one, just so we're clear. The messenger is distinct from the message, but not unrelated to it. Have you ever heard somebody that you know is living a horribly immoral, disgusting, worldly life try to present the gospel? You kind of want to say, just stop. Because instinctively, we want our lives and the message to match. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is this? This is being light and salt, right? That we're different. I'm going to talk about that tonight, being the light of the world. We're light, we're salt, we're different. It's been rightly said that the church has never been successful at evangelizing by becoming like the world. The church is successful by being utterly different than the world. And so, yes, we live a transformed life. Your life ought to be in stark contrast to what the world does. Part of his intended way, we would say, is maintain a vital prayer life. Everyone can do this. I think the questions we would ask are, are you praying for the salvation of the unbelievers around you? In your home, in your neighborhood, in your co-workers, your extended family, is that a regular part of your prayer life? And because of those prayers, are you looking for opportunities to present the gospel? Uh, You recall early uh, this year, Um, we talked about evangelistic prayer. We spent four weeks on that or so, and we even had a board back there with with our, our, our people we were praying for. We had hundreds and hundreds of names up there. And so evangelistic prayer went through the roof in our church for that time. But you know what also happened? Is evangelism went through the roof. Because when you're praying for somebody, then you tend to find opportunities to proclaim Christ to them. And so... Maintaining the vital prayer life. Colossians 4, 3. Paul said, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. I think that is a spectacular example. That the Apostle Paul, arguably the most educated man in the word of God ever, says we need prayer for the door of the gospel to be opened. So living a lifestyle is the first step, but it doesn't proclaim the gospel. Prayer is your next step. Uh, we we want to be clear that uh, your, your lifestyle and maybe even praying, that is, that is fabulous. That is a good first step. But uh, doing things like you know, you're in line behind somebody in the grocery store and they're short $5 and you can tell that she's got eight kids with her and desperately needs these groceries and doesn't know what to do. And you say, I'll pay for your groceries. Not only the five, but I'm going to pay for everything. And you say, God loves you. Well, that's nice, but that's not a gospel presentation, is it? So if you're going to present the gospel, present the gospel. It, may, it might make you feel good, but it doesn't do anything for them spiritually. Third, in the his intended way idea, have the right expectations. Unbelieving man is hardened in heart and unable to receive spiritual things. 1 Corinthians 2. And so 
your expectation is not that you will be able to convert anybody. You know how many people I've converted in my 25 years of gospel ministry? Zero. I've never converted anybody. The Holy Spirit has converted lots and lots of people. But so have the right expectations. This is why prayer is so glorious. I, I coined a term. Someday I will write a book. This term is called chicken evangelism. Chicken evangelism says that I know my own weaknesses. I have a fear of man. I, I have all these sin issues. I'm afraid. And yes, I know that's an issue, but I still care for the lost. So chicken evangelism says, I'm going to pray for these three, four, or five people intensely and ask the Lord to bring them to my path that I might proclaim the gospel to them. I've seen that be helpful. I've seen that be helpful. Years ago, when I, I worked in a place where I got to work with a bunch of kids and there was one, a 13-year-old, uh, a 13-year-old who was uh, already charged with multiple sex crimes on small children who was going to spend the rest of his minor years locked up. And this little kid was as hard-hearted as a child as I've ever seen. He was the, he was the one that when he turned 18, you knew he was going to become a, a rapist and a serial killer. And this kid comes banging on my office door and he comes and sits down and he says, I'm going to hell and I don't know what to do about it. I had no idea where that came from. I shared the gospel with him and he came to saving faith in Christ. I don't know what happened except that the Holy Spirit chose to move in him. Now we get to the result of living a transformed life, maintaining a vital prayer life, having the right expectations, start the conversation. Now, while this does happen, if you'll pray for it, you can't just automatically expect unbelievers to initiate a spiritual conversation. Yes, we pray for that, but most of the time people are going to work to avoid that topic. Would you like to talk about God? Not really. <clears throat> so you have to initiate the conversation. The strategy of being friendly until somebody asks why we're different, that, that doesn't usually work. A trans, lots of people are friendly it's very rare for somebody to actually see your entire transformed lifestyle and hopefully that is the case and that can happen. But just because you're the nicest person that a certain cashier at Starbucks ever sees, she's probably not going to say, you know, despite the fact that you have a line of people behind you and I'll probably get fired if I ask this, I'm really wondering why you're so nice to me when others aren't. That just doesn't happen. So that's not, not reality. Um, frankly, sometimes unbelievers are going to resent you for being different. Well, he's just a goody two-shoes. Uh, especially if you, if you uh, step in this mistake when you see somebody who is talking about you know, the drinking party they just went to and you, and you say something like, uh, well, God doesn't approve of that. That's not helpful. Of course God doesn't approve of that. But why should they care? They're not in God. They're not in Christ. And so a better question is, what do you think, that you're, what is it you're looking for by doing that? What, what, what need is that filling? That helps with a conversation. How do you start the conversation? Best way to start the conversation is to build relationships that create a context for gospel presentation. And we'll talk about that next time. Relationship, relationship, relationship. That is everything. And then the last part of his intended way, rely upon scripture as the only authority. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Scripture alone, not experiences authoritative, um, speak the message of Christ. Not necessarily your experience, your opinions, or your preferences. Um, certainly not, you know, before I came to Jesus, my life was a wreck, but now my life is, is turned around. 
You know what I've talked to? I've talked to a lot of people whose lives are wrecks and they tend to be okay with that. Yeah, I know I'm doing drugs. I know my arms are pocked up with, with uh, meth needle marks and I know that I look 55 when I'm 30, but I'm kind of okay with that. It's my life. Why are you butting in? So, yeah, maybe your experience can be helpful, but just the truth. Your experience is not blessed by God. The truth of the gospel is. Gimmicks don't open blind eyes. Only the gospel of the Lordship of Christ will do that. Second Corinthians 4 says that. And we would then end off with Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you can challenge somebody to say, look, I'm going to see you next week. Will you read this Bible verse this week? Will you read Titus 3.5? That he saved us, not on the basis of good works that we have done, but because of his mercy and by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Would you just read that this week and then come talk about it? You know what you did? You just aimed an arsenal of truth at their heart. And you don't have to do anything except just keep following up. Well, some of you read the book, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. And I'm going to end off with this. I I don't have this on a slide, but he gives these steps, five steps for evangelism. They're very simple. Number one, pray. We've already talked about that. I'll repeat these. Number two, use the Bible. Use the Bible. Number three, be clear. Be clear about the gospel. Number four, provoke self-reflection. Get them to look at their own heart. Provoke self-reflection. And number five, use the church. Use the church. Pray, use the Bible, be clear, provoke self-reflection, use the church. What do you mean by use the church? It's not rocket science. Invite them. Invite them. In our case, you also can send people, a lot of you do this already, send people links to certain messages. I'm excited about today's message because all I'm doing is the gospel today. There's nothing else. And so that will be a no-brainer. That's one to send to your friends and family. Look, 45 minutes won't kill you. Why don't you, re- why don't you listen to this for 45 minutes while you drive? So we have four minutes for questions. <laughs> so uh, questions from anybody on either last week or this week. I might ask you questions. There's one over there, Larry. Do you have comments on I've known people who have gone through it. Um, I, I, I've been the recipient of, I've been a prayer partner with people going through evangelism explosion. Um, I think that thousands and thousands and thousands of people have heard the gospel because of evangelism explosion. My criticism would be that it takes way too long to learn it and it, there's a lot of memory work involved, which is great. But if you've ever been in a, in a gospel presentation situation, sometimes your memory floods you or, or fails you. Um, t- you might be thinking this is weird, but I keep in my Bible the five verses from the book of Romans that I need to turn to in case I'm in a situation where my emotions keep me from remembering my outline. So uh, this is in my wife's handwriting too, which makes it even more special. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. 6.23, the wages of sin is death. 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Romans 10.9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous. Or that's a, if you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart. So 
I think evangelism explosion has gone a long ways. Um, Grace Community Church years ago developed an offshoot of evangelism explosion, which is more gospel-centric, called discipleship evangelism. So I, I think that that's probably an improvement. But uh, we fall back on Philippians 1. The Apostle Paul said, if the gospel is preached, no matter the motivation, then we rejoice in that. So we praise the Lord for that. So um, if somebody wanted to do EE here, I would probably defer to saying that we should do uh, discipleship evangelism, which I think is an improved version. So good question. Thank you. Yes, Rebecca. What about the church component for people, friends, family that don't live near us? And how do we, how do we get them plugged into someplace that we trust is a sound church? I know that there's some things online that kind of point you to that, CMS, Church Finder. Um, but I, I feel like for us, a lot of our close friends and family outside of Bakersfield and so then it's kind of daunting to think well where would I even send them how would I know where I could get them plugged in that would be a safe place so the, the question is how do you how do you use the church with somebody who's not geographically close to you um, well first of all we rely on prayer and on the sovereignty of God that that, that is God's sovereign plan that, that you are far apart um, but it's also you know the Bible says be, be uh, wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove it is also fine to call a local church and to ask them, do you have somebody that might happen to go door to door on this street and at uh, uh, 123 Elm Avenue by any chance and to present the gospel? I have no problem doing that. Um, it might even be that you just directly tell that person, look, I've been sharing the gospel with you, but I can't, I can't do this long distance. Could I, could I encourage you to get connected? I, here's three different churches that I've looked into that I think share the same message from the Bible. Would you, would you consider that? Just, just go show up. Um, I have seen in our church, we had a, we, this was a few years ago, we had a, a guest, an older gentleman and a young man, and they came up and met me. And the older gentleman said, I live in Virginia, and I just flew out here to take my son to church. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, just getting creative and using all the efforts you can. And ultimately, you're just praying uh, for them. That's your, that's your best effort right there. Good question. Who else? Yes, Deb. I've deferred to Philippians 1. If the gospel is preached, then we rejoice in that. A lot of people have gotten saved at Willow Creek. A lot of people have gotten saved at Saddleback. Their ecclesiology is horrible, but uh, people have gotten saved there. People get saved in Pentecostal churches. People get I, people have gotten saved in in uh, in Catholic churches. Now then, they run really fast because the Word of God is living and active and powerful. And somebody reads a scripture verse and they get saved. Um, so I I'm not concerned about somebody's connection if they're presenting the gospel and they're connected to a ministry. I. I think churches like Willow Creek and Saddleback ought to be ashamed of themselves for what they do to try to teach unbelievers that they're actually Christians just because they show up to church. But people still get saved there. Uh, and I would say despite the lack of presentation of the gospel, not because of it. Um, so, yeah, you know, look, if, you're, if your back's against the wall and you have bad guys coming at you, you throw rocks, sticks, anything you can, right? So we'll, we'll get the gospel out as much as we can. And um, uh, I appreciate the Apostle Paul 
who in prison knew that people were out of prison gloating over him and yet preaching the gospel. And he said, I rejoice in that. I absolutely rejoice. So that's, that's where I would fall on that. I wouldn't go to church there, but uh, praise the Lord, they present the gospel. Two more questions. Yes. Sure. Uh, the question is, if somebody rejects the gospel outright, what do, you, what do you do at that point? Well, at that point, you you do the same thing you have been doing. You tell them the truth and you warn them. And I would warn them from uh, Hebrews chapter 10 that God does reach a point where there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, that there is a finite number of times that God will allow somebody sovereignly into your life to present the gospel to you. There will be a last time. And there will be a time when God turns you over to the hardness of your heart. Um, and and uh, Romans 1, that at that point, you will be unable to repent. And so I'm just telling you as somebody who, you're, you're on a train headed toward a bridge that's out. And I'm on the tracks screaming, you need to stop, you need to stop. And eventually that train's going off the cliff. So that's what I'm telling. I'm just warning you. I'm, I'm not trying to be right. I'm not trying to win an argument. I'm trying to keep, get you to stop the train and build a bridge instead that is made of the cross of Jesus Christ so that when you get to that chasm, which is called death, then you will go safely across. You just warn them. Good question. We're three minutes over. I probably should let you go. Let's pray briefly. Our Father, let the gospel go forth from the very mouths of the people in this room and we pray that there will be a day in heaven that some would stand before you and now with sovereign knowledge given by you would say I came to faith because somebody in that room on October 31st 2021 went out and shared the gospel with me we look forward to that report Lord to see how you will sovereignly use this time we pray in Christ's name amen